Jen? <laughs> you all set? Yes. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. Uh, this is a podcast uh, that it started out mostly about actors and artists, and it still is to a large extent, but we've also been expanding it to a lot of different fascinating people with careers and and things to talk about, and that's always uh, was always my intention as well. So I'm very excited to continue that trend uh, with my guest today, uh, who has a very unique uh, background and and concept and book and all these things that tie in for her, which we'll explain. Uh, her name is Bethany Miller. She is a doctor, a PhD of uh, business. Uh, she's also a pilot. She was in the Air Force, and now she's a commercial pilot. And she wrote a book uh, that came out of her doctoral thesis studies called Flux Agents. And now she runs a company called Flux Agents that does career coaching, speaking, mentoring, teaching, training, for both the corporate side and the employee side using this flux agent concept. And she also uh, runs a, or works with, I should say, excuse me, a nonprofit called the Abingdon Foundation, which focuses on helping women in uh, what are called STEAM fields, uh, science, technology, entertainment, art, and I'm missing the last one, aren't I, Bethany? Mathematics. Mathematics. Thank you. Sorry, I knew I, 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 I knew I'd forget one, maybe. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we're going to talk about all that and more. So I'm very excited, Dr. Bethany Miller. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Lee. What a great introduction. Oh, I try. <laughs> well, um, no, but it's true, and it's you know, it's it's so fascinating all the different things you you've done and are doing, and I'm really excited to uh, to share it with people. So, um, as I mentioned, your background ends up leading up to your creation of this flux agent concept. So it makes sense to go through your background first. Um, so at different times in your life, uh, you were in, well, you were in the Air Force and then you, and now you still are a commercial pilot. But let's start at the beginning. Where are you actually from originally? Well, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. I went to the Ohio State University, mm -hmm. and um, I was in Air Force ROTC there. So when I graduated, I was commissioned in the Air Force and was awarded a pilot slot and spent uh, a year in undergraduate pilot training learning how to be a pilot. So to be clear, you're saying your, your college program was training for the Air Force. That's what you were there for. Well, it was a normal undergraduate degree. I studied atmospheric sciences. Oh. And when I when I graduated, I was commissioned into the Air Force. Got it. But that that's what it, that's what's designed to happen. That's what the program is for, or no? Right. By taking courses in Reserve Officer Training Corps (ROTC), I was able to focus a lot of my studies on aerospace and. Um, military science, and with certain grades and certain benchmarks, you're commissioned into the Air Force, and then you agree to serve a, a certain amount of time in the Air Force, and it's longer for pilots and other specialties. And so I wanted to spend my career serving my country. Well, that's fantastic, and thank you for your service. Um, now, so, and obviously studying those sciences is a logical step toward and connection with flying. 
Um, so backing up a little bit, like since high school, you know, when did you decide this is the route you wanted to go? Oh gosh. Um, well, like a lot of other pilots, I just always knew I wanted to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and being, being in the Air Force allowed me to pursue leadership, um, tracks that I was interested in and investigate certain technologies I was interested in all while serving my country. And then I competed for and, and won a slot in pilot training. And then when you go through pilot training, you have to compete on a, a lot of different areas. There's flying skills, there's navigation knowledge, there's simulator training, uh, there's other ancillary tasks that you do to get through pilot training. And if your grades are good enough and you pass all of the benchmarks, then you're awarded your wings at the end of pilot training. Um, and so I was on a track where I could choose which aircraft I wanted to fly, and I wanted to go fly cargo airplanes. I wanted to see the world and, and participate in many different missions and and do some of the really cool things that cargo airplanes get to do. Very cool. So sounds like you always knew what you wanted. So so getting in that cockpit was really the goal for you. Pilot was becoming a pilot was your objective. It was, but you know, when you say um, that's what you've always wanted to do, um, I think as we experience things in life and you take different courses in school and you meet different people and you join different groups, your knowledge expands and your interests change and you as a, you as a person evolve. And so through a course of maturing and getting smarter and being uh, having a wider reach in the world, you really refine your interests, and I was just so intrigued by some of the leaders that I met uh, in my early days and, and a lot of mentors that I had that really helped get me over some obstacles and get me through some hurdles, and I, I found my place where I enjoyed being competitive, and I really enjoyed the camaraderie of the military, and I, I felt very patriotic and that I wanted to give back uh, to a country that had given me so much and that I had a, a lot of faith in, and, and I just really enjoyed the service. And so my path, although I look back and I say I knew that's what I wanted to do, it was certainly reinforced by everyone I met and every course I took. That's fantastic. And what you, what you were saying about your interests evolving is, of course, what ultimately became the flux agent idea for you, and we'll talk about that. And I, you know, I completely agree with you, even in my life, uh, you know, a sim- similar thing, this decision, you know, I'm almost 40 and I'm now pursuing this new type of career I'm trying to create of the podcasting and journalism and writing. And it's, it's very exciting, but anyway, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay. So, and how many years did you end up spending in the air force in total? I was in the air force for 20 years. I did 10 of that on active duty and 10 as a reservist. Incredible. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that you could tell a million stories, but what were just a couple of the most exciting or interesting highlights of those 20 years for you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you two ends of the spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. My first overseas cargo mission as a certified pilot, and I was uh, I was the 
the legal co-pilot on, on a flight that went through Germany and Egypt and Kuwait. And when I finally got to Kuwait, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is a part of the world I never thought I'd see. It's so exotic. Um, someone from, from a town like mine with an upbringing like mine to, to see the world was just amazing. And so I wanted to know, uh, what we were doing and, and we had brought cargo and commissary goods for the troops in Kuwait. And so I, once we got there and we were offloading, I went to the back to, to watch the cargo being unloaded and they kind of lifted the tarps off of some of the pallets back there. And, and I thought, this is, this is so amazing. What I'm doing is so important. And I looked under there and there were pallets and pallets of cup of noodles and spam. Ah. And I thought, isn't that just the, the most odd thing is, yeah. you know, this mission that I thought was so amazing and saving the world, and we brought cup of noodles and spam. So um, <laughs> I just got kind of a kick out of that. Sure. Um, it was a, a lighthearted moment and, you know, kind of put me back into reality. You're saving the world, but you really brought them cup of noodles. Yeah. Um, and, and then on the other side of that, to, to be more um, – realistic about some of the things that you do in the military. Um, I, the first time I flew into Baghdad after 9-11 um, in, a, in a C-5, I was uh, this large, large cargo airplane, biggest aircraft in the U.S. inventory. And, and I flew into Baghdad and I was the aircraft commander and we were just on the ground for a short time while we offloaded cargo and then unloaded other cargo that was coming back uh, out of the desert and and we were trying to be on the ground as, as little time as possible because the exposure there was great and uh, we wanted to make sure we were as secure and safe as possible. So we tried to get out of there as soon as possible and and we looked for uh, clearance to close up the aircraft and, and depart and uh, our command post wasn't giving us clearance to depart. They wanted us to wait, but they weren't telling us why. And We kind of pushed the issue. We need to get out of here. We need to get out of here. Uh, eventually, I got off the aircraft and went inside and, and talked to some of the commanders in there. It turns out we were waiting to bring back uh, one of the soldiers who had died in the last couple of hours, and he didn't have to transport back uh, back to Germany where we were going. Um, so we, our mission was to hold and wait for him to be ready to be transported uh, back west, and, and uh, it just... Again, another moment where I realized I'm in this for something much greater than myself. And um, in the pride of being able to assist in that moment and take care of that soldier um, and his brethren and his family uh, by way of honoring the service and the sacrifice that he had um, by ensuring that our mission now was able to bring him back home safely um, was just very profound for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, fantastic. So, um, you know, I would like to ask, uh, you know, about both commercial flying and military flying this question. And, you know, maybe you, you can tell what, if any, the different answer to the question is in each case, which is, you know, unfortunately, it's well known that it's uh, sadly over the years, and I certainly hope it's better now, but you know, has been an uphill battle for more women to be pilots uh, in both the military and commercial. Um, did you find any 
pushback about your gender or anything like that? And also, you know, what can you say now about, you know, women in, in flying again in both military and aviate and commercial? You know, has it improved a lot? Are there a lot more women? And, and where do you see that, that aspect of things? Well, that's an interesting question, and it's uh, it's March, it's Women's History Month, and so uh, we we talk about that a lot. And uh, I've, I've always been a woman in non traditional fields. I majored in in science uh, in college, and then I became a pilot, and I joined the military, and so all those things have been uh, very heavily male dominated, mm-hmm. uh, just historically. But I do see a lot of women. Uh, around me doing the same jobs that I do, very capable women. Of course. Um, and I've en- enjoyed that support and camaraderie, um, both from the women, but also from men who s- seem to respect my capabilities and my leadership. Good. Um, and so I, I, like all women, have some stories of um, times when it's been difficult or lonely to be uh, one of the only or one of the few women in yeah. my career field. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would say that for the majority of the time, uh, I get either surprised looks to see a woman in the cockpit um, or smiles and high fives because it is still unusual. There's only 6% women in aviation worldwide, wow. and that's been a longstanding number. Wow. So we often talk about why is that, how do you raise the numbers, yeah. what inspires women to go into these career fields uh, what prevents women from going into these career fields? Mm-hmm. Do women even know about these career fields? Mm-hmm. So that's what we focus on a lot at Abingdon Foundation. Great. We are an organization that supports women in non-traditional fields, particularly the STEAM fields, like you said, science, yeah. technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. Yes. Because the more you talk about women in these roles and the more you see them doing these jobs, the more accepted it becomes or or commonplace to see a woman and once you start seeing more women in these fields then more girls realize that they can do those jobs or they see role models that they can emulate or just people that they can ask questions to absolutely and that's a great great and really important thing you guys are doing and i gotta tell you i was you know cautiously optimistic when i asked the question but i gotta say uh, that six percent number is shocking. That is tragic. I'm, that's really crazy. Well, it is, but uh, you know, when we talk about why women aren't uh, a larger number of um, pilots or people in aviation, engineers and rampers and dispatchers and uh, ground agents. Um, we talk about the fact that uh, it's not a career that a lot of little girls consider. Right. And so there's a lot of initiatives out there that are just really awesome. Um, there's an organization called Women in Aviation, and every year they run a Girls in Aviation Day. Great. And, and there's a lot of programs for girls in sciences, girls in um, outdoor activities like Girl Scouts and a lot of female leadership training programs. And I think those are all wonderful initiatives in the fact that they're exposing more women, providing more knowledge uh, about areas in these career fields. Um, But when you get down to it, you've got to encourage women to pursue their passions, no matter what that is. 
Absolutely. And uh, we'll, of course, post links to all these things you're mentioning and any other resources you would recommend uh, in the episode notes of, to, of the podcast today. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really great what you're doing. So, um, so 20 years in the Air Force, half of that uh, as a reservist, right, you said? Right, yes. And so uh, during the, and I assume that was the, the second half of your time. Right. Yep. So was it during that reserve time that you were starting to, or is that when you became a commercial pilot or is that when you went to grad school or neither? <laughs> <laughs> Both. So oh, great. the great thing about being a reservist in any of the services is that you can serve your country and, and work uh, in the military doing your specialty for um, for the duration of your career, while at the same time having a civilian job, a family life, yeah. going to school, and pursuing your other things. So you're a part-time military person. Yeah. And I thought that was just a really fantastic way to divide your life just for somebody who is interested in multiple pursuits. So when I came off active duty, I had the opportunity to interview and, and be hired uh, into the airlines and became an airline pilot. And while I was doing that, then I also went to grad school. I got my MBA at Georgia Tech and was able to um, pursue a path in education that I thought was really interesting. So, um, so at the same time, I was in an MBA program flying for the airlines and flying in the Air Force Reserves. And um, the next question you're going to ask me is, how, how did you manage your time or how did you do that? Uh, because I talk about this a lot. Um, and I will tell you that one cannot do these things without a support system. Um, my husband is the most patient person, and he's my Sherpa in life. And he helped me manage my schedule so that I'd be able to, to do all of that. And so we spend a, a lot of time discussing um, our calendar, where our time is going, yeah. if our pursuits are worthwhile, if they're fulfilling to us, and what we should be doing more and less of um, as citizens and for our community and for our family and, and for our personal fulfillment. So okay. it's possible to do all that if you've got a good support system. Well, 100%. And yes, the whole time management question is is a big topic, and it ties into the whole flux agent thing that we'll get to shortly. Um, but, you know, yes, it is very impressive, and I think but people do all kinds of things in, in their lives, and, and you just make it work. If you want something, you... You figure it out. You know, life is life is limited. You gotta you gotta take advantage of every moment. Um, and so, but what I am curious about is what motivated you to pursue the the MBA. You know, after all these years as a pilot and that being the the path you started on, what was the uh, you know motivation for going for the MBA at that point? Oh my gosh, um, that's a great question. I was really interested in business, and I I thought that being in the military gave me a lot of skills in areas that people who aren't in the military um, don't recognize immediately. Um, when you're in the military, you're not just a pilot, in my case, um, but you also have different leadership positions within the squadron or within the wing, um, and you go to different leadership schools. And you, and you exercise the duties of an executive on each mission. 
So you're overseeing a crew of people that have different jobs and different skill sets, um, and you and you work together as a team. So um, being able to do a number of things, I thought, was important, but not easily recognizable in the business world. And if I ever wanted to go into business, I wanted to be sure that I would have the particular skills I'd need in industry. So I was always looking to get my master's degree. Um, I, I like education. I like the philosophy of learning and what it means to be in an environment where people are discussing uh, what knowledge means and, and how to do, do things better. Um, and I was fortunate to live in Atlanta, and there was a really great um, MBA program at Georgia Tech. Uh, and it, it was an executive-style program where we went um, every other weekend for a year and a half, and then it was an international program. So we also did coursework and studies in Argentina, in the United Arab Emirates, and um, in India. So that program allowed us to travel to those countries and, and study there and work with business people in industry to get exposure to a number of different fields that I would never have access to otherwise. Yeah, excellent. So again, continuing that trend of you just getting exposed to a wide variety of things. Um, you know, I'd like to know more about getting an MBA in general. I mean, obviously, as you know, there are different programs, and you know, uh, some may be better than others, and some may give you different kinds of opportunities within it. But you know, in general, um, a lot of people get MBAs, and you know, for for various reasons. Um, as someone who's not in the business world and has never studied business in that way or anything, what generally do you learn in an MBA program? What What is the content, the coursework of an MBA? Oh, that's great. Um, in an MBA program, you're going to study at least one each of all the subjects. So you study marketing, you study statistics, you study economics, you study business law, you study strategy, um, and then different MBA programs have some other focus in, in other areas as well. But it's designed so that you understand how businesses work, and if you have a specialty, because a lot of MBA students um, – and I hesitate to say students because people picture young people who are going through school, but MBA students are of all ages and all backgrounds. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, so most of those people have business experience or military experience or um, artistic experience in other fields. They already had a profession. They were already specialists yeah. or generalists in something wonderful. And you come to an MBA program so that you can refine those skills and get a taste of the other things that are going on in the business around you. So um, the best way to describe it is uh, when my law professor came in to, in to start our business law courses, and he said, I'm not here to teach you how to be a lawyer. There's law schools for that. I'm here to t teach you as a business person how to know when to call your lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was the best description yeah. because you're not in one MBA course going to understand the, the intricate um, specifics of the law career, the law field. You're, you as a business person are going to work with lawyers. You're going to hire lawyers. You're going to have meetings with lawyers. You're going to need a lawyer. 
And so you should know what the legal terms are, uh, what legal implications are for your business, uh, what contracts are about, how to read a contract, and like he said, when you need a lawyer. Yeah. So that's that's true in all the subjects. You're Unless you're truly a statistician getting your MBA, you're not going to go into statistics as a profession. I but you're going to, right. to work with statistics and have a statistician on your staff yeah. or need to know when to hire out for one. So you're in an MBA program, you're getting exposure to all of these deep professional fields so that you know how to work best with them for your company and your life. Makes sense. That's great. And, <clears throat> you know, so as I mentioned, a, a fair amount of people get MBAs and that, that doesn't mean it's not, you know, that doesn't mean it's not impressive or that it's easy. It's not at all. Uh, but le- less common, much less common is continuing past that and getting a doctorate of business, which is what you did. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I loved my MBA program. L- uh, really liked it a lot. Um, and when you get a doctorate, you're pursuing a question. You're becoming the world's foremost expert on one very specific, tiny little field. And so you have to approach the program with a question you want to solve. And so um, the best thing you can do for anybody pursuing a doctorate program is to ask them, um, what's your thesis question? Because people love that. They love to talk about what they're pursuing and, and why. Um, and so I didn't realize going into it uh, how very, very narrow, and they use that term a lot, narrow, your category has to be. If you get too broad, you'll never have the time to research everything you want to know about your field. You have to be very, very specific in what, what you're answering. Um, yeah, that's, that's true of pretty much any doctorate in academia like it has to be really specific. No one else has, has to have uh, touched it before. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, okay. Now, now, did you go into the doctoral program immediately after the MBA, or was there time in between? No, lots of time in between. Oh. So um, I, uh, I waited about 14 years after my undergraduate to pursue my MBA, mm-hmm. and then I waited another um, – nine years to pursue my DBA. Oh, okay. And So lots of life goes by and gives you time to raise the questions you want to ask. And what were some of the things you were doing during those nine years? Was this, this was, were you still in the Air Force Reserve at that point or not anymore? I was, yeah. So I was um, getting towards the end of my Air Force career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also a... Uh, management pilot at another airline. Uh, so I was both a, a pilot and worked in management. Okay. Um, and I was a member of a lot of organizations and uh, I wanted to pursue my doctorate because I was involved in all of these things. And I was reading articles on, the, you know, this was the time um, post the 2008 economic crash um, where people were starting to have lots of jobs for lots of reasons. But what was most interesting to me was the people who had multiple jobs because they wanted to. People who pursued lots of different avenues of interests because they were curious. And we were seeing again the rise of the polymaths. People who pursued 
multiple subject areas with depth um, and, and got very knowledgeable about multiple things. And uh, I don't think we've seen a, a time in the early 2010s uh, like like there was during the Industrial Revolution or the Enlightenment period or the Renaissance where uh, people pursued art and business and innovation uh, and politics and law and different areas of business with with great enthusiasm. So again, these were the thoughts that were leading you to what became your doctoral thesis, which was the whole flux agent concept. Right. And then in 2012, so I'm, I'm reading voraciously on, on all of these subjects and, and people who do different things and, and looking at my own career and, and all the avenues I've taken and um, read an article in Fast Company magazine called Generation Flux. And the editor, Robert Safian, wrote an article, it was actually became a series, on uh, what he called Generation Flux. And these were people who were um, very driven by a gig career, um, people who had multiple pursuits, uh, people who didn't follow a traditional career path, uh, but had many options and really enjoyed what they're doing. And I thought, you know, there's a lot more to it than, than that. Um, it, he, he was right on. He, he was talking about adapting during chaos, um, succeeding because you're uh, multi-talented and, and well-connected. Um, and, and I know there's more to it. I wanted to talk about the passion of it and the psychological makeup of the type of people who do this. So that's what you ended up researching and, and writing about. I did, yeah. Um, I dropped the term generation because internationally that doesn't translate. I, I got my doctorate in France, and so with a lot of uh People who speak English as a second language, when you when you throw out a term like generation, uh, immediately they start thinking about baby boomers or millennials or Gen X, right. um, because that's what the term right. implies. Yeah. Um, and I needed it more to uh, define a peer group or an orientation right. or um, a breeding of certain people. It was more a coterie of um, people who acted a certain way um, instead of a defined age group. And then when I did my research, I found these really interesting facts, which are people aren't, um, people aren't flux agents based on their age or their demographics. Uh, it doesn't matter what gender you are, what country you're from, what, what country you do business in. Uh, your religion, your uh, your political thoughts. Uh, people from all backgrounds can be flux agents. This is made up of people who think their careers are boundaryless. This is truly people who don't see that they have um, any kind of limits to their professional life or personal life. Um, there's hurdles, there's obstacles, um, there's paths that... Uh, aren't appropriate for you at this time. Um, but what flux agents are is adaptive. Um, the environment is changing. There's a lot of chaos out there. 
um, globally and in the business world. And flux agents adapt to that. They find things that work better. They invent new processes. Um, they have connections that see things differently. And so that's what I was interested in, is these people who are boundaryless. Yeah, so let's get into some of the nuts and bolts of this, because, you know, first of all, you, you said something earlier with me, and I also heard you talk about this when I heard your interview on Sirius that, that led me to contact you, which is, you did make an important distinction. I think it's easy to hear this kind of thing and go, oh, you're talking about, you know, somebody who can't focus on one thing or like a jack of all trades. But no, 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 you said with depth and you said not, you know, you said you do different careers, but each one you do, you focus on it for that time and you get really good at it. Right. Okay. So the obvious examples are like Oprah Winfrey or Elon Musk or um, Benjamin Franklin, really, really knowledgeable, studied, um, tested, driven in multiple areas, right? Oprah doesn't hand out business cards that say um, author right. or spokesperson um, because Oprah's Oprah. Oprah can do anything. Oprah's got uh, probably 50 revenue streams. Oprah has people connections in every field and can be well-spoken on multiple topics. So let's talk about people who are well-spoken on multiple topics. Um, and, and when you asked me earlier, how did you do it all at once? Well, you don't do everything at once. You can't be good at multiple things that you're pursuing at the same time, right? They, they tell you not to multitask. You don't get really good results at everything you're doing at once. 100%. So, when I was in the Air Force, I I was a, a pilot, and I studied that, and I did that well, and I learned that well. And, and, yeah, you have other hobbies and pursuits, but you're pursuing one thing with, with great uh, passion until you're really, really good at it. And then you study other things. And so flux agents get better with age because they've had more time to have these in-depth experiences. There are young people who are excellent flux agents, but in my studies, they've pursued things with depth for, for a lengthy period of time. And so they just got serious about it earlier. And so people always say, well, how do you know who's a flux agent? Well, I've got a survey you can take and I'll point out some of your results. Um, but you're a flux agent if you say you're a flux agent. So let me tell you about the, the psychographics that make up a flux agent, right? Mm-hmm. So first of all, you have to have a boundaryless attitude. You think that um, you're driving your own career. You're very flexible and responsive to things that happen. You've got a lot of mobility um, psychologically, physically, emotionally. Um, and so you're very agile with how you perceive um your path in in business and in life. You're just boundaryless about it. Nothing will stop you. You may not be able to go the full direction you thought you were going to go, but you you find workarounds. You find paths that work for you. And then the next attribute is intrinsic motivation. You're going to get up and do this thing no matter what anybody tells you. Nobody's forcing you to do it. You just find it interesting. And it's there's this fire in your belly. You're you're driven to do it. So Flux agents have intrinsic motivation. There's a difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. And Dr. Carol Dweck talks a lot about that 
on her website. She's a researcher at Stanford, wrote a wonderful book called Mindset and talks about people having either a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. So a growth mindset is that you're always developing throughout your life. You love learning. You like the challenges. You see that failure is part of the process, and you're always willing to try again, try something harder, try something new. You're not afraid to stumble along the way. In opposition, a fixed mindset says you're talented in this area, and that's what you're good at. So you tend to avoid doing things where you think you're not talented. Uh, The next trait for a flux agent is extroversion. You find a community of people who recharge you. Um, Extroverts normally are assertive and outgoing, which gives them the advantage of being able to ask a lot of questions, get a lot of momentum, um, be out there teaching and taking on endeavors. Um, Typically, flux agents are, are... more extroverted than not. And then the final attribute is openness to new experiences. So flux agents are in love with fresh ideas. They like to try new things. They're artistic and creative in ways that mean they will have bravery, um, presence in the face of adversity. Um, They like to try new things. They are um, motivated and lit by new experiences. So that's it. Boundaryless attitudes, intrinsic motivation, growth mindset, extroversion, and openness to new experiences. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like you named those four things at the outset. You discovered those things were the common traits and identified them, right? Oh, yeah. And I tested a lot of theories on this. I tested whether um, your social interaction, your social had anything to do with you being a flux agent. I tested creativity as a trait. I tested entrepreneurship as a trait. Um, I tested superstars, you know, how there's all, you know, you can name in any field who are the superstars. If I throw out basketball or um, uh, hedge funds and finance or um, theater, you can name the superstars, but that doesn't mean they're flux agents. Right. Um, And I tested academic theories. I tested leadership traits. I tested generations. Is Gen Y more flux than the baby boomers? Um, And not necessarily. These are the ones that um, tested out scientifically. Makes sense. Now, so let's talk about it on a a bit of a practical level. You know, you you coach both uh, managers and, and business owners and so forth, as well as employees themselves. And, you know, I assume from your perspective, you know, a flux agent is a very advantageous type to hire for all the reasons you've mentioned and more. But, you know, just to play devil's advocate a little bit and raise an objection that an employer might raise, you know, the employer might say, you know, these are nice terms, boundaryless, self-directed, whatever, but I'm hiring you to do a job. I want to know that you're going to focus and achieve what I'm asking you to achieve, not go off on your own, your own thing, you know? Right. That, and that's exactly right. Um, a lot of employers like to say, stay in your lane, right? I hired you to do a job. I need somebody to fill this role. I had a job description. You had the resume. We interviewed. I chose you to do this role. And, now you're getting out of your lane. You're, you're 
trying to be involved in other departments that aren't your specialty. And that's a big problem. Well, so, I mean, I might agree with you that employers shouldn't be closed-minded to people trying to do that. But, you know, in, in reality, though, you know, you know what I'm saying? From the employer's perspective, right. manager's perspective, they might go, you know, that's great and maybe we'll look at that, but I still need you to focus your time on what I hired you to do. Right, exactly. And so the issue is not that um, an employer hires someone um, to do a job and they, they're too wide or too broad for that role. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue is that employers don't recognize when a person needs more challenges or when a person has more skills in other areas and can work really well cross-functionally or with other teams or on different projects at different times right. or needs to be bounced from department to department. So employers, when I, when I talk to companies, we talk a lot about uh, recognizing the personality and psychographics of uh, the person they're hiring. So psychographics are more than just your personality traits. Psychographics are what marketers focus on uh, when they're talking about products. They are your values, your interests, your passions. And so it's important for employers to recognize what's important to their employees. So if you're looking at an employee in a role, um, and they're they're good at it, and this is what they're interested in. A, a lot of um, employees stay in their lane. They do their job. They identify with the title on their business card, and and they enjoy doing their work. Uh, other people need more challenge than that. They need new experiences. Um, they thrive on new ideas, and it makes them more creative in their role. And when you stifle somebody by not letting them adapt over the course of their career, um, the people who are flux agents in particular, you're really driving them out of the company. They're going to seek new experiences, whether you help them seek them or not. So um, I've got a friend who works with employee retention, and she says, your employees are going to bounce. Do you want them to bounce within your company or out of your company? Right. So, but again, you know, so that sounds great. And, and if they have a position that does suit that type of person and can move them to that, that's great, but I'm assuming that's not always the case. Not every company can create something that's ideal for the particular employee. So it sounds like ultimately, in some cases anyway, both sides may have to go, well, clearly this isn't working. We're not giving you what you need, and, and we don't have something that fits that right now. That's not what we're looking for. So one or the other side may decide they have to part ways, right? This can't always be resolved in some ideal way. Right, and I think that's healthy. I think that, uh, the, you know, the world is changing. Um, it, as we get more technology, as we become more connected as a world, as the, uh, the financial markets go up and down, as uh, political climates worldwide change as as they do um, businesses change also with them the products and services that 
that businesses offered 10 years ago are not the same uh, almost across the board that businesses offer today. So some of the employees that businesses hire um, are looking towards new opportunities in the future, not for themselves, but for for the business itself. So I ask employers, are you hiring people who are going to solve your problems five years from now? Are you hiring people that recognize where your industry is going? I encourage employers to send employees to industry conferences because they will meet people working in the same fields, doing different things, and get a greater insight to where markets are going. And if you have those connections and those insights, then employees will help the businesses go in the direction they need to go in the future. So yes, companies need to hire people to do very specific roles. They also need to recognize which employees need more challenges, more experiences, a a bigger community of people within and outside of their workforce. And then they can capitalize on the specific traits of all of their employees. Who wants more very specific work? Who needs to stay in their task-specific role? Who needs to venture out and learn new things so that they can help the company move in the direction it's moving? No, it makes sense. And yeah, it sounds like both sides, both the employees and the management can benefit and learn from this um, in a lot of cases. And maybe, you know, like I said, in some cases, they can't help that particular employee get what they need. And maybe that employee, therefore, has to find a different place to land. But in some cases, yeah, maybe the employers go, oh, wait, we could use this thing we haven't thought of yet, or let's create a new role for this person. Yeah. Right. So almost all companies have customers. Uh, Most companies, even if they sell a product, they sell a service alongside it uh, as well uh, because you're you're serving um, the people who come to you for products or services. And so when you're serving an audience, you have to recognize when the needs of the audience change as well. Um, Just because you buy, um, take a product, dog food, Today, what are the needs of the dog food industry um, in the future as we gain more insight into the health of animals and to the way that people live and and interact with their pets um, and how animals are used in the creative industry uh, as well and in the service industry as companions and um, medical assistants uh, animals, you'll see that the needs of the consumers that own dogs will change and evolve because our knowledge is better. Yep. And so the employees that work at companies that, that sell those services or those products uh, need to recognize what's going on as well. And then they can focus their projects more on serving the customers. Makes sense. Um, in the work you've done with companies, you know, when you, um, when you do this kind of training or, or, or speak to companies about this, you know, um, what has their response been? Do you have any specific examples of companies that have made changes along the lines of what you're talking about? Yeah, so um, a lot of companies need that to soak in for a little bit. It's a different mm-hmm. way of looking at employee management. Sure. And yeah. it's, not, it's not quickly 
adaptable because everybody's got a job role and usually uh, employees are evaluated once once a year on their performance and that's based, measured on what their role says their job description is and what their performance should be. And so expectations don't change overnight. Of course, yeah. But a lot of companies will in turn, sit down with their employees or add to their annual performance review questions like, um, are you fulfilled in your role? If you could do anything different with your job description, what would that be? Um, Are there things that you think we should be adding to our platform uh, that we haven't seen before? And so they start to introduce these questions that let the employee's opinion uh, be heard louder or let the employee take more of a lead on defining what their role actually is. Yeah, and, you know, companies these days, a lot of them do understand that that is important. Um, I can give you two quick, just small examples from my own life. Um, You know, as a uh, Uber driver, um, they've made a lot of improvements over the years based on driver feedback, and the drivers are a lot happier. And when I worked at this company, CarMax, selling used cars, um, it's a very good company. It's been on the list of best companies to work for for many years and so forth. And I can see why. It's a very positive, inclusive culture there, and they're always asking for and, and implementing employee feedback, and they actually do they do do things that employees suggest to, to streamline processes, to make things easier. So I, I did experience some of that with them, and it's, it's a wonderful feeling. It really is. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah this, this really, this, you know, it is fantastic, and you're right. You know, obviously, this kind of change takes time. You don't, you don't turn the, the ship around immediately, but it's great that people are starting to, to evolve toward it. Um, but I want to ask you sort of a tangential question, but it's related to this, and it has to do with a broader trend in the business world these days. Um, part of it is what we were saying, but, you know, this general thing nowadays, and I just heard somebody else talking about this on, on a, an interview the other day. Employees these days are demanding so much more from their jobs. They're they're demanding and expecting a lot more benefits, flexibility, time off, working from home, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, this person even said on this interview, you know, if a employee doesn't like the way their job is handling something they want, they're going to run to Glassdoor or one of these job review sites and post a bad review. And I stopped and I thought about this and I thought, okay, you know, there is a balance, and of course employers need their employees, you know, to be happy. They should. <laughs> um, but it does seem a little like maybe we're tipping the scale a little too far the other way, because when did it become so much about what the employees want? You know, when you review something, it's usually because you're a paying customer for it. But when you're an employee, you're the one being paid. The employer is the one giving you your salary, paying you during your time off, giving you these health benefits, this paternity leave, etc. So all good things, but where do we find that balance of, you know, the employer saying, hey, you know, we're trying, but 
we're still the ones paying you. Like, why is it all about what you want, you know? Right, yeah, that's a, a really good um, conversation because it's important that the employees and the companies are well aligned. Right. And, of course, there's always ups and downs, and people have bad days, and employers and companies have bad stretches, either economically or leadership-wise. But overall, um, you're talking about a misalignment of an employee and a company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, again, I'm not talking about, you know, a bad quarter or, uh, you know, bad week, uh, bad boss, bad interim something. I'm, I'm talking about overall when you look at your job. And so employees then are not in mass, but like you said, you've, you've talked to some people, and it, I do see it happening out there, will post a bad review about their company on, on a job review site. Um, and it's like any other customer of a, of a product, right? They have had a bad experience. They want to talk about it. So are we giving employees the avenue to discuss what – bothers them? Do they have the space to voice their concerns? Are they heard? Um, you're always going to have somebody in a, in a bad mood at a bad moment um, do something rash, but the topic is whether they actually have a venue to discuss those things. So in the case of the employee that wants to write a bad review of the company because they're not getting along there, um, I'm more concerned why that employee stays at that company. Exactly. Are they staying there for the money? Right. Um, are they staying there because they're either too lazy or don't see other avenues to pursue another career option? Um, is it... Are they staying there for some sort of personal gain, um, in which case they should realize um, more why they're staying in that role, or do they just feel trapped? Uh, there's some reason for that inaction of not either taking charge by getting a new job, pursuing another avenue, working with management to change the situation, um, or seeking out a different department within that company to work for. Um, and so I'm more concerned about that lack of communication, the lack of mobility. Um, you've now gone from somebody feeling boundaryless to somebody feeling very, very bounded. They're, they feel trapped. And that's what I would want to discuss more. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And again, I love what you're saying, which is, you know, you, you, there, sh- there should be communication. There should be attempts to resolve this. But at the end of the day, if it turns out that that particular individual is just not the right fit for that job or that company or the company just can't give the benefits and the flexibility that person wants or needs, then in some cases, yeah, they have to, you know, one of them has to make a decision that this isn't working and the employer has to look for a job that does fit that does fit their needs and wants. So, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and, and it goes the way, other way, too. I, yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, please. Well, I, yeah. I, see, uh, I see companies and bosses that keep employees for far too long. They know they're not performing well. Right. Um, they know that they're unhappy in their job. Yes. Um, they know that they're not creating a great environment for their fellow employees. Yes. And, and yet they keep them on far too long, and that's a disservice not just to that employee but to everybody working with them. You're because that unhappiness right. is felt widely. 
you are so right. I've experienced that personally too. And you're, you're a hundred percent right on that. I completely agree. Um, uh, and I should, by the way, just to be fair, not that I mentioned who the particular person was or anything, but I should clarify, I was using that interview I heard as a little bit of an example and a jumping off point, but I should say that one of the points she was making was that it was more about the employers not following through on what they said they would do. And that, of course, is an issue. And also, ah. she was explaining that, you know, what happens, too, is there may be a policy on paper, but then your actual direct manager either doesn't really know that the policy exists or doesn't really follow it. So there can be a lot of difficulties uh, in that sort of thing. And, and that, of course, is a valid issue as well. Right, exactly. And how you approach those topics is important, too. So first, to your point, everything should be in writing. Your job description should be in writing. Your expectations um, for the role should be in writing. Yeah. Because if it's not, then it, it doesn't exist, not legally anyway. Exactly. And, and then when you do see a, um, a mismatch between what the expectations are written and what's actually happening – then how do you approach your employer about it? You know, you're, you're not going to get very far or you won't, won't win very big if you stomp into somebody's office, throw the contract down and right. say, it's supposed to work like this. Right, right. Um, you, if you are a better negotiator, you will discuss uh, in, in much more friendly terms. And, and by friendly, I don't necessarily mean you have to love the person or be all excited no. and happy about it. Right. Uh, but professional and respectful yep. to discuss what's actually going on so that you can come to a resolution uh, about what the situation is. Absolutely. One of the... Um you know, I'm very interested in this stuff as, as an outsider. I really am. Um, I've read some books on management that I think are great. And uh, a, a great recent example these days, I assume you're familiar with, um, the CEO of the company Kronos, Aaron Ain, and he wrote a book about this too. They decide to implement a 100% unlimited time off policy for all their employees. And it had to get approved by your manager, of course. And, you know, there were limits with, you know, not too many people from the same department being out at once and whatever. But as long as those conditions were met, employees can take as much time off as they want throughout the year without any, without any uh, pay issue or anything. And they found that it actually worked great and employees actually took less time off, believe it or not. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote a book about it, and, um, you know, it, 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 the whole thing is very fascinating, yes. Um, okay, very cool. So, um, again, to kind of wrap up, or you tell me what else you may want to mention about the Flux Agents component. So, again, you have the book, which anybody can, can get, uh, all about this. And then, of course, your website, fluxagents.com, is where you can find more resources and where you and your team can be hired for coaching, training, speaking, whether you're an employee or owner or manager of a business, right? Right, yeah. So fluxagents.com, and you can order the book um, via Amazon um, through the website. Um, and I also do like to talk to people who have multiple careers, um, my surveys on the website and there's a space on there for you to talk about 
uh, your thoughts about being a flux agent. Great. Um, do you identify as a flux agent? Did you at one point and you no longer do? Uh, I got a lot of great survey responses that said, you know, I, I was um, in a job where I moved every three years and I had constantly changing job titles and, and did a lot of different things and I thought that was great, but I felt unsettled. And now I found the place where I want to live for the rest of my life. I found the job that I enjoy doing and this is me and I don't see it changing. So I don't identify as a flux agent. Well, that's really good insight there into that person's psychology of self. Who do they think they are? Uh, what type of work do they think they're contributing to this world? And where do they see their best fit? So very enlightened uh, responses that I've gotten um, from the survey. So, um, so there, there's a, a great chance to comment on, on how you feel about being a flux agent. Yeah, and also to be clear, and we touched on this a couple of times earlier, but, you know, just to be clear, we're not saying, or you're not saying everyone should be a flux agent or flux agents are better than other people. You're simply no, saying absolutely. some yeah, people no, are, a measurement. and some people like just doing one thing, and that's great if you're happy with that, you know, nothing wrong with that either. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you take other personality traits and, and uh, tests and see your traits, you don't um, get sad because you fell on one spectrum uh, or the other. Uh, you just identify with who you are. And once you have a very, very sure sense of self, then I think you actually gravitate towards the work where you're fulfilled, you're challenged, you're happy. And that, in turn, creates a good working relationship with your employer. You you end up in a company or in an industry where you feel valued, where you feel like you contribute, and the employers get a lot out of employees like that. So uh, every employer I've talked to uh, really wants to hire people who know themselves, know what they're good at, know what they like, articulate who they are, because then they can be placed correctly, and then they can work on the right projects, and then the company can do great business. Absolutely. And you know what? Let me ask you this, too, before we move on. You know, and I've been in this position myself, and it took me a long time, you know, for a lot of different reasons to finally figure out my kind of different approach to, to work and life that I'm doing now. But, but let's say you're in a job, you're not happy, it's clear to you that, you know, you don't really, you know, this position and this track you're on is not going to get you where you want to go. And you do have those flux agent feelings like, I need more, I need more variety, I need more challenge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And let's assume, just for this scenario, that you know it's not going to happen at your current company. What are some of the first steps someone in that position can take, you know, especially if they're not in a position financially to just quit, you know, what are some of the first practical steps they can take to make a plan toward the ultimate goal of finding something that will fulfill them? Oh, great. Um, I... I talk to people a lot about what to do next, where to go from here. And so the first thing is don't make any rash changes. Exactly. Uh, first, you need to sit down on, and on paper extract everything that 
your current role is giving you. So there is a lot of value in what you're currently doing, even if you hate it, even if you're going to leave really soon, even if you think that you don't identify at all with this position or this company. If you found yourself in the spot where you absolutely do not belong, first, tell yourself what you're getting out of it. Is it that you have a, a great um, title and so you're, you have leadership and influence and, uh, and oversight and so that gives you some sort of power stance uh, because you have had those experiences in that area. Are you working in a subject matter that you can now put on your resume? Is, did it give you exposure to marketing or advertising or uh, create some creative fields that you can um, use in in your future or say that you have in your background? Um, did it give you uh, some sort of financial gain? Are you making good money? Do you have good benefits? Is it allowing you to live the lifestyle that you want to live? That's very valuable. So when you realize what your current job that you hate that's horrible for you is <laughs> giving you, then you can take those things and make sure that other people know that they're part of your experience, part of your knowledge set, uh, part of your um, baseline for what you want to gain at the next company or in the next endeavor and your next creative pursuit um, because you'll know what your minimums are now. So then you need to spin uh-huh. who you are. Right, right, gotcha. Spin who you are and uh, and design your LinkedIn profile or your resume or your personal webpage to say the type of person that you are based on these experiences that you've had that will benefit you in the future. So you can design your next job description. Design what it looks like, what's important to you, what minimum salary you need, what type of benefits you need, what area of the country you want to live in, what you need your your uh, job description to say or the type of people that you want to work for or work for you or work around and and then you know which direction to go that's so cool that's right i love that that you use the struggles you're having currently as a way of concretely identifying what you need to avoid in the future i love that yeah, so I'll give you an example. I, when I was um, looking for a business job and my previous resume said pilot, um, and, and now there's a lot of people who will work with military people to translate your resume into the skills that you actually have so it reads more um, civilian-friendly. Um, but my resume at the time said pilot. I was pilot of a lot of different things and pilot in a lot of different areas and um, flew a, di- a lot of different airplanes. Um, but nobody would look to interview me in a business job because they thought pilot was a skill. I might as well have said plumber. Well, they can't see hiring a plumber to work in marketing at a Fortune 500 company. That just right. doesn't happen. So um, I, I really worked hard to show that I did other things uh, besides being a pilot, and some of my ancillary duties in the military included being um, an, a staff executive officer and working in the safety department and working in training and development. And now when you talk about all those other skills that you have in, in, in um, along with the title of pilot, um, you'll see that um, people are exposed to so much more and have so many more experiences than what it initially says on your job description. So um, 
spin is key. And I, I don't say that bad. I don't, I don't badly. I don't mean to make up things no. for your resume. I mean to take a good hard look at what you actually do and what you're trained in and what your job description is and articulate that better. No, I love that because the point of a resume, you know, yes, you're showing what jobs and titles you've had, but then under that you're showing what, you know, what that means, what that that means you have these skills, these experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. Um so, and, uh, you mentioned LinkedIn. Now, this is a, a common piece of advice, uh, that, in fact, my guest yesterday, Christy Bishop, the advertising executive, talked about this as well. And I'd love to know, you know, your, your thoughts on this, which is, you know, do some research, find people who are doing the thing you want to do, and try to connect with them via LinkedIn or some other way and be professional about it and, be detailed with an email saying something like, you know, I'm really interested in this and here's why I would love just 20 minutes to ask you a few questions, things like that. And not everybody may decide to respond to you, but more than likely, if you approach it in that kind of professional and, and interested way, they may be willing to talk to you and then you start to get, you can get some advice from them on, on how they got there, you know. Yeah, that's great. There's a um, there's a new app. I don't know how new it is, but it's called Shaper, S-H-A-P-R. Mm-hmm. And it's a connecting app. And when you sign up, you put what the hashtags that kind of define what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And then um, you can also put your goals on there. Like you want to mentor others or um, make professional connections or hire freelancers. Um, and then you swipe left and right like you do and, and – so somebody will see that um, you were interested in their profile, and it's more like um, LinkedIn in real life. Right. Um, you can connect with people in your area who um, want to hear more about your nonprofit or want to talk about graphic design or uh, or something that's in your wheelhouse. So you can also say, I'm looking to learn more about whatever subject and um, venture capital. And then people will say, well, I've got experience in that. Let's have coffee. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, I, I think I either saw this or something similar. It may have been this or may have been a different one. But, yes, that's very cool. Uh, and, again, we'll post that link uh, in the episode notes as well. Yeah, you know, these days, that you know, thank goodness for the Internet and social media because there are so many ways to find these people. Even for me with the podcast, I've been able to – I found you. I, You know, it's you can, you can pretty much reach – you know, in most cases, you can find a way to reach to reach somebody. But um, so yeah, that sounds like a great app, <laughs> sort of a Tinder for for professional connections. That's great. Yeah, well, um, and you heard heard me on the on the SiriusXM uh, business talk and and reached out and you had you you reached one well, you did two things one you reached out to me but two you had a very specific ask. Thank you. And a lot of people don't know to do that. One, to be bold enough to just reach out and say, hi, um, I thought your profile was great. I admire that you did this. Um, I'm, I respect the, the work that you've done, whatever it is. And then to have a very specific ask. So um, I go to a lot of conferences and a lot of people say, you know, uh, wow, um, I'd like to be more like you. 
<laughs> well, that, no, you, you absolutely don't want to be more like me. You want to be more like you because you wouldn't be good at being me and I would not be good at being you. So um, let me ask you about you and what make, you know, what are you good at? What are your passions? Where are you boundaryless? Where are you intrinsically motivated? So you be a great you, but then have a great ask, you know, ask what you want to ask. Uh, you know, somebody asked me, um, can I email you later so we can stay in touch? Well, okay, here's my email address. Or um, can we connect on LinkedIn? That's a great ask. Um, or not just LinkedIn, but pick your favorite networking platform. Um, because people are all over the place on different things, depending on, on where what your industry is into and, and where you're um, technologically savvy. So um, ask if you can connect. And then if you have a request, um, ask for the request. I've written authors and said, I, I loved your book. Could I have another copy for somebody I'm mentoring? Um, you get some yeses. You get some noes. Um, you know, you can ask to share resources. You can ask for a recommendation. But what? why are you reaching out to somebody? So one, definitely connect. And two, tell them why you're connecting. Go ahead and ask. Be bold for it. You know, worst case, they say no. And then you say, well, what, what can we do? Who can you connect me to? Um, and, you know, if you never hear back, well, then that's, you know, politely back away. But most of the time, people are anxious to try to help you if they can. Well, yes, and I thank you for saying that, you know, and, and I, I can tell people, you know, as an example, it's true. I found success in getting people that I am not necessarily sure at all would be willing to come on the podcast with me. You know, you guys don't know me, and it's a small podcast at this point. Um, but I've been successful with you and others by doing what you said. I send a very detailed, polite email with my exact reasons of, you know, why I'm interested and why, you know, what it is I want to talk to you about and why I think it would be beneficial for the listeners, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, specificity uh, and obviously a professional, polite tone. But, yes, specificity is, is important. Um, so... And uh, you talked about, you know, if you don't get a response, you know, sometimes so be it. The way uh, Christy Bishop put it very specifically on her episode yesterday was, uh, don't try more than three times because then it gets creepy. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so, by the way, and I think you were just alluding to this, forgive me if I'm mixed up, but was it you on, on Don Graham's show that told the story about you were trying to meet somebody or somebody was trying to meet you and buy you a coffee to talk and it ended up reversing that you wanted to buy them a coffee. That, yeah. that, that That's what you were just talking about, right? Right. Yeah. That, that what was, was that story. Yeah. I, uh, I was at a conference and, um, we were in line for coffee before all the, the morning events started. And, uh, this woman in front of me looked looked fairly young. I learned never to judge anybody on looks, but uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm here to make friends, and I, I've met a lot of great people, so well, we were just in line. I asked her what she did, and um, if she, and she said she was an engineer, and I, I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a pilot, and we discussed how we were in aviation together, and um, and I, I was going to buy her a coffee and, you know, ask her about her career expectations and where she wanted to go in life. And the more we talked, I found out she was a professional engineer and had, had designed some of the very, uh, intricate 
components uh, in my aircraft computer. Right. And, right. and uh, I was just floored at the things she was saying. She had so much knowledge of this product. She was the lead mechanical engineer on that uh, piece of equipment. I learned so much from her in line. I, I felt like saying, well, will you buy me coffee and mentor right. me a little bit? And right. you just never know who you're going to meet and what experience and background they have. So, yeah, you can never judge on um, on looks or expectation and um and I learned a lot that day, not just from her professionally, but also as a uh, as a judgment piece. Yes, and I'm so glad I was right that that was your story. So you weren't like, what are you talking about? Because uh, <laughs> it could have been a different interview I heard. Good. Well, yeah, again, all phenomenal advice. Uh, really, really important and really great. And, you know, the, the great thing overall about all this, one, again, is that the world is so open to all of us, especially these days. Uh, and with the internet and everything. And, you know, whatever your goal is, whatever the, the change you want to make in your career or any aspect of your life, you can do it. You know, make a plan and, and, and go with it and, and do it. But there's, again, it's just, it's so exciting because there are, you know, really endless uh, opportunities out there and resources to, to get you there. So that's that's great. Um so, uh, before we wrap up, uh, let's talk more about the Abingdon Foundation. You, you mentioned it at the beginning, and we talked a tiny bit about it, but uh, I know it's a very important uh, cause to you, as, as it, you know, and rightly so. So, uh, please tell us more about that. Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll flow it from flux agents. Um, a lot of people ask me, how, you know, how do I get involved in a new career? How do I break through, or how do I change my resume to show that I do have experience in these fields or get experience in these fields. And, and I always tell them, go work for a nonprofit. Nonprofits are just hungry to have volunteers who are going to dive in and, and do some work and share the, the mission and, and share the resources. Um, nonprofits want to be well-known because they have a service they're offering, usually for free, um, but they want to serve the community in, in whatever capacity that they're doing. And so if, if you call up a nonprofit and say, you know, I'd love to help you with um, this part of it. Here's my experience. Um, for me, uh, with Abingdon Foundation, I'm the one who manages our volunteers. And I find it very difficult when people say, um, I volunteer, what do you need? Uh, because it we have a difficult time um, doling out tasks. And I also don't want to turn off somebody if I say, well, I, I need you to do this task or work on this project because it might not be their interest, might not be their skill set. Uh, they might not live in the right area. Everything's virtual or worldwide these days. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciate it when somebody contacts us and says, I have a background in graphic design. Um, I could help you with your design needs. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I immediately have four things I, I need you to help right. with. Right. Um, other people will say, I'm a, I'm a speaker. I speak to, to um, kids uh, about um, engineering. Oh my gosh. So much stuff I need help with. So share what you're good at. Or sh I've, I've had people do the opposite and say, you know, I have no experience in fundraising, but I'd love to get some experience in fundraising. Is there something I can help you with? Well, now I know uh, where your interests are and what you'd be, uh, what you, you would have a good time helping us with. Because if if my volunteers aren't enjoying what they're doing, they're not going to volunteer for us for very long. 
They're not going to talk about us to other people. They're not going to share our things on social media. So I want them to be involved with something they're excited about. So that's a, my tip for people who want to transition fields or get new skills or work for somebody else or in a different areas. Go pick your favorite nonprofit or pick one that you think isn't very good and go help them. Um, Absolutely. And again, so that this, that same theme that just keeps coming up, which is be specific in what you can do and what you want to do, not just, hey, I want to be here. That's great, but be here doing what? Yeah. So, right. um, so yeah, that's great advice. But again, so, so again, just remind people exactly what it is the Abingdon Foundation does. Right. So we are a uh, 501c3 nonprofit mm-hmm. uh, supporting women in non-traditional fields. And specifically, we help women in the STEAM field, science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. Women are underrepresented in all of those areas. And people um, raise a question about arts. A lot of people will say STEM. They're talking about the STEM fields. Well, nowadays, and if you if you look out there online, most organizations are coming around to saying STEAM. Yeah. Women are underrepresented in the arts across the board. Yeah. Um, you When you say artist... Um, you know, initially you, you tend to think of a woman who's a painter or a woman who's a um, singer. Um, but what we don't realize, and, and you know, how very broad the arts field is. Sure. Um, there are so many things that creative people are doing in the arts, whether that's um, directing and producing and, and writing. You know, you can think the whole Hollywood a section of the arts or um, makeup artistry. My sister's a makeup artist. She told me that most makeup artists are men, and I didn't realize that. You picture, like, the female freelancer doing wedding makeup or something. Absolutely. It is surprising. Most um, of the of the makeup professionals are men because they do um, special effects. They do um, theatrical or um, professional corporate uh, musician, dancer makeup. Um, they get the contracts for um, TV and, and news shows, uh, movies and, and Hollywood and scripted shows. Uh, I had no idea that women were so underrepresented as, as makeup artists. Yeah. Um, a friend of my sister's is a, uh, a welder and blacksmith. Mm. Um, she's certainly underrepresented in her field. Good things. So. Um, yeah. Very few women are gallery owners or um, composers, choreographers. There are mostly men in these fields. So we're here to advocate for women in the arts um, and to have to have equal opportunity um, for women to pursue their passions in these fields. Now, nobody is advocating that 50% of all jobs need to be done by women. No, right. Nobody's saying that. Right. What we're saying is that women and girls and young women should be exposed to um, all of the careers so that they can pick something that is truly interesting for them, that they're truly passionate about, that they want to pursue. Um, and that's not just for their careers. It could be in their hobbies or as a side job or um, as an entrepreneur um, or something that they just would like to test for a while. And so what Abingdon Foundation does is we are the hub for STEAM fields. There's no other organization 
where you can go to get resources and information, um, networks uh, about um, all of the STEAM fields. So on our website, we have 21 different industries that we support, um, and we provide scholarships to conferences. So we're, we're a startup nonprofit. We've been around for about a year and a half. And so far we've given out scholarships to, um, a woman to attend a helicopter industry conference, uh, the women in aviation conference two years in a row now, um, a scuba diving industry conference, a shooting, hunting and outdoor tactical conference. Wow. Um, we're working on motorsports. Uh, we're working on other outdoor adventure pursuits. Um, we've got a technology conference that we're attending this spring as an organization, and next year we'll offer a scholarship to that. Uh, so we are definitely expanding our offerings, and we will provide uh, conference entry, full conference registration, uh, hotel transportation, uh, visas if the winner is an international winner, to come to this conference, and then we'll make sure that you network and attend education sessions and talk to people about the career field and look for jobs if that's what you're doing. And so we're supporting women in these STEAM fields by providing resources. That's really absolutely fantastic. So so women can go on your website to, to find these resources, find this information, and connect with you guys and see, you know, if they may want to enter for these things or just work with you or get your help in whatever it is they're looking to do. And um, I also assume you being a nonprofit that people can, if they want to, support you guys financially to help with these things, right? I assume being a nonprofit, you can Oh, my gosh, yes. Donations. Yeah, we, we are in need of a lot of support um, financially sure. through volunteers, through sharing message. And so people say, what can I do to help? Well, there's all kinds of things you can do, do to help. We've got a donate button on our page. We do accept donations. We love our donors. Um, we also are looking for partnerships with companies who are interested in sharing our message. Um, they don't necessarily have to be companies that um, – work directly with women or directly in a STEAM industry. Uh, we've got some great partners that are interested in helping support us, support women in STEAM. Uh, we are looking for volunteers to speak to um, school groups about the different STEAM industries, particularly if you are a woman in STEAM, if you are women in science or technology or engineering uh, in many of the arts fields. And so your audience, I'm sure, um, has a great variety of artists who might be interested in paying it forward to the next generation of people who will become artists after them and and math um, some great career fields in math and then there's careers like aviation or the nautical fields where you're using a lot of skills in all of the steam subjects um, so we're looking for volunteers who will um, help us develop education kits or help us speak at schools or help volunteer at the events that we go to to stand behind the booth and hand out our literature and, and take donations on our website and talk about what we do. And if you can't do any of those things, we need virtual volunteers who will just uh, follow us on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Twitter. Follow us, please. And then 
reshare our messages or tag us in a post. If, if you are a woman or working with a woman in a STEAM field, uh, we need that exposure because we're trying to help other women network. And we can't network unless we've got a big network ourselves. So we actually had um, a scholarship go unawarded this year. We had a scholarship um. to a conference that two people applied for, and they didn't even fully fill out the application. So money went unobtained. There was money on the table that somebody could have attended uh, an industry conference. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant. I thought you meant you guys didn't have the money for it. You're saying people didn't um, know how to do the app, didn't know about it. Got right. It. Yeah, they did. Nobody applied. That uh, that fully filled out the application. So uh, I also give advice to, to people who are who say, oh, my gosh, I'll never qualify for a scholarship. Well, no, you will not if you don't apply. You're 100% guaranteed to not get it if yeah. you don't apply. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I encourage people to fill out scholarships um, and job applications, even if you're not qualified, because then later you can contact the company or the organization and say, um, what can I do to be better prepared for next year? What can I do to um, get hired at your company again later? I'm really interested in your company. I want to be hired there. What is it about my resume that I need to fix or work on? Can you mentor me or recommend somebody or um, help me out? Uh, and and that's the best part of networking is finding out what you need to do to make it better for next time. That's another great point that a lot of people wouldn't think of that, you know, if you get rejected from something, still use it as a networking and learning opportunity, you know, say, hey, thank you for this opportunity and this feedback, you know, I, I really do want to do this. So would you mind just telling me a little more about what I was lacking so I can try to improve those those things for next time? Yeah, that's phenomenal. That really is. All right. Well, Bethany, this has been uh, really enlightening on so many different levels. You have a great story uh, personally, and you're doing incredible work uh, on both these fronts with the uh, the Abingdon Foundation and the Flux Agents um, organization, not to mention uh, getting us all around the country safely in your airplanes. So thank you for <laughs> that as well. Um so um, we'll make sure to post all the links to all the different things we mentioned, all the different ways they can find you and your organizations and, and uh, support it by, by connecting and re resharing and so forth, just like you said. We'll post all that stuff in the episode notes. Is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Well, I'd like to thank you for what you're doing, sharing all the knowledge and exposing people to different aspects of different careers, particularly the artistic pursuits. Um, and, and I'd say we're all a little bit artistic because we're shaping our careers in the ways that best fit our interests and our skills. And, and that's a creative artistic pursuit. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. And I certainly agree with you. You said that uh, really perfectly. I couldn't have said it better myself. That 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 really is how I feel. So thank you for that. All right, Dr. Bethany Miller. Again, thank you so much. And for everybody listening, if you want to reach me about the podcast for any reason, you can email Craft Business Life Podcast. That's all one word. Craft Business Life Podcast at gmail dot com. And until next time, bye bye. <laughs>